women are trained to think about rape every day. But this victim-blaming culture puts all the onus on women to keep safe and very little on the rapists. Sahila Abdullali is a survivor, a writer and a former coordinator of a rape crisis centre and she's written an incredible book called What We Talk About When We Talk About Rape. And it looks at this intensely difficult topic with humanity and grace and courage. Talking with Fenella Kernerbone at All About Women, Sahila interrogates consent, male entitlement, and perhaps how we can create a world where women are free from fear. Obviously, this conversation doesn't shy away from the realities of sexual assault. So please be aware before listening. Hello. I just want to say that it's really surreal to be standing here in the Sydney Opera House when I think about the fact that 38 years ago I was up on a mountaintop, scared to death, knife at my throat, and the only reason I'm alive and standing here today is because I swore to those people that I would never tell a soul what happened. <laughs> so some promises should not be kept. Um, so I'm going to start by read, reading two small bits from my book. Um, since I've tried to bring the temperature down by acknowledging how complex rape is, but at the same time trying to make the point that we can be calm and sensible when we discuss this awful thing, I'm going to read two sections that deal with two of the most difficult issues, consent and confusion. First, consent. Um, we talk a lot about women's agency, and while I was researching the book, I found some surprising things. I found a group of sex workers in rural India. I spent a couple of days in the brothel with them. And I found that they were a lot more sexually liberated than many an urban Indian woman and American woman. And they were a lot more able to protect themselves. I also confirmed something I've always known, that we are all extremely hypocritical about rape. We have really clear and conflicting opinions on good girls, bad girls, who gets raped, who deserves it, and who rapes. So I'm going to read this little bit from a chapter called Yes, No, Maybe. Yes means yes, and no means no. If it were that simple, this book would fit on an index card. But here we are, pondering the meaning of consent. It's both really easy and really difficult. Blue Seat Studios created a charming little video, Consent, it's simple as tea. It uses stick figures to illustrate why having sex is like a cup of tea. If you wouldn't force someone to drink tea, why would you force them to fuck? If someone said they wanted tea and then changed their mind when you made it, would you pour it down their throat? And so on. It's a nice tool for children, but sex isn't a cup of tea. If you don't really want a cup of tea, but you drink it because you're afraid you'll offend your host, that's good manners. If you don't really want sex, but you do it because you're afraid you'll offend your date, this happens all too often. That's not quite the same thing. It might not quite be rape, and then again, it might be. What are you afraid your date will do if you say no? A friend of mine went to a brothel when he was a teenager. He had had only a few sexual experiences and wanted to expand his horizons. He went swaggering in and put his money down. A sweet and very young-looking girl took him into a little room. We both sat on the bed, he told me, and I didn't know what to do. She was just looking at me. So I said, take your clothes off. She said, no. So then I asked, 
I didn't know what to do. Was I supposed to force her? She said, no. I said, okay. Then we lay down next to each other for a while. Then the time was up and I left. <laughs> this makes perfect sense to me. Yes, he paid for sex. But if she didn't want to take her clothes off, he had no right to rip them off. He could have asked for his money back, but he was correct not to force her. It's obvious to me, but plenty of people think that once he'd paid, she was his to do with as he pleased. Being a sex worker doesn't mean you deserve to be raped. Neither does being a spouse. I'm reading another quick paragraph from the same chapter. Let us consider and hang our heads in shame about the extremely low bar we set for consent. Consent to what? A man having an orgasm and a woman letting him? A prisoner submitting to a guard to gain protection from further abuse? An old woman with dementia putting up no fight when the nursing home attendant gets handsy? That is such a poor standard. Sex is about pleasure and joy. For both, or however many are part of the action, willing participants, let's aspire to this. The second thing I want to talk about is confusion. There's so much confusion swirling around rape. For instance, the connection between rape and sex. Now, when I was in college, we used to march around doing take-back-the-night marches with signs that say, said yes means yes and no means no. And that's really important, and it's great that we did that. But I think it's time for us to realize that they are related. Rape is not sex, but it's a sexual act. And if we don't talk about them together, it's really impossible to understand. Because sometimes, if, sometimes when we talk about, we think we're talking about sex, we're actually talking about rape without realizing it. For instance, think of all the messages we give our kids. We, we sort of, by osmosis, let them know that sex for boys is fun and great, and they don't have to worry about it. And for girls, they have to put up with it. It's like a fun thing for boys and something to manage for girls, because boys aren't expected to control themselves. So are we talking about sex or are we talking about rape? We need, we need to kind of figure out the ways in which we're confusing the two in order to separate them. Um, so that's one kind of confusion. And then there's a whole other kind of confusion, which is what happens to you after you've been raped, how you're supposed to be. Um, and for that, I'm going to read a couple of pages called A Brief Pause for Confusion. In the fall of 2017, the international news was suddenly full of women who were abused and terrorized by men, who stayed in relationships, personal and professional, with their abusers and have said they have conflicting feelings. This may sound confusing, and I've had friends express doubts to me about how severely these women were really victimized. Maybe it wasn't so bad. No, no, no. This is a tough one to grasp, I know. So I repeat, no, no, no. How you act with your rapist afterwards, and even how you might feel about your rapist afterwards, doesn't indicate the seriousness of either the crime or your trauma. In the midst of my own shock and pain all those years ago, I felt a fugitive pang for the people who raped me. I had no history with them. They were strangers, full of hostility and rage, and I had nothing in common with them. I looked into their eyes and felt sick with panic, but I also felt a weird compassion. I think calling it Stockholm Syndrome and labeling it a pathology or a dysfunctional response is too simplistic. 
I didn't like them or sympathize or understand. But I did see that in some odd way they were fellow human beings. And they were not happy. They were not having a fine old time out for a jolly gangbang. Maybe some men have fun committing rape, but these men were not. It was all terrifying for me, but they were also tormented. And I couldn't help noticing that and feeling a tiny chord of empathy. Oddly enough, this might have been what saved my life that day. Their plan was to kill us, my friend and me. I talked and talked and talked. I've never talked that much before or since, except maybe now. <laughs> and um, I forgot that I was supposed to be a shy kid. I talked about how I knew they were good people. We were all brothers and sisters, blah, blah, blah. Let me be very clear. I did not think they were good people or that we were brothers and sisters. I thought and still do that they were extremely bad people. They were malign, brutal and vicious. But it was the only way I could think of to get them to see me as someone they couldn't destroy or themselves as people who couldn't kill. And perhaps the only way I could do that was to believe it a tiny bit myself. If the world were different and I had seen them in court, would I have felt sorry for them? I have no idea. I'm just pointing out that it makes perfect sense to me when I see photographs of famous women smiling and hugging men whom they later point out as rapists. The fact that you have confused feelings about the person who hurt you doesn't make you guilty. It makes you human. Um. So I want to just give you a little bit of background about my book and how it came about. Um, I was gang raped in India when I was 17 years old. I was home on vacation from, I live in, I, my family had moved to the US. We were living there. I was about to start college and I went home for the summer. My dad was there. He came back with me and I, a friend of mine and I were kind of kidnapped, gang raped and almost killed. We couldn't report to the police, the police wouldn't believe us, so we couldn't really report it. And then I went back to America, started college, carried on, and in three years I decided I wanted to do my senior thesis on rape in India, because I thought it would be fascinating. Um, so I went back to India, expecting to find lots of people to talk to, and found only one in the mirror. Um, and I found people who kept saying, there's no rape in India, or there's only a particular kind of rape, upper caste men rape lower caste women. A rape like mine didn't fit into the general narrative of what, what happens. Um, so then I was indignant and I found out about a feminist magazine called Manushi. Um, and you have to remember this was before the internet. So, and I wrote an article for them talk, saying that I was raped, I'm not ashamed, here is my photograph. And I sent it and they were most happy to publish it and created a bit of a stir, and then it kind of died, because there was no internet. Um, then I came back to America and had a whole life of 35 years and kind of forgot about that article in a, a bit. And then, I'm sure you all remember, in December 2012, there was the gang rape and murder in Delhi of Jyoti Singh, which started a huge national conversation in India. For the first time in history, really, rape become, became a topic of everyday conversation. And the worldwide media jumped on this, of course, because suddenly India was the rape capital of the world. And they were desperate to find someone who had survived, who would talk. And in all these years, they still hadn't found anyone. So somebody found that article and put it online, and I was completely blitzed by this, and didn't know what to do, was taken by surprise, 
suddenly got all this attention. And as a response, I wrote an article for the New York Times about life 35 years on. Then afterwards, that became a big deal. And then I quietly slunk off into my corner again and wrote other things for five years. Then five years later, I decided that it was time to write a book, not as a victim, not a memoir, but as just someone with many thoughts on the subject, who's dealt with it in all different ways. So this happened. And I know rape is a, it's a hideous kind of subject, but I just have to say that writing the book was a total joy because it was really fascinating as a writer and it was also fascinating as a person who survived it to talk to others. Because even though I had worked in a rape crisis center before, I had talked to people who were in crisis. Whereas here I was talking to people like myself, just regular people, I'm sure there are plenty of you in the audience too, who this awful thing happened to, who have carried on and made a life. So it, it was a really interesting experience and also I'm not terribly disciplined, so I didn't have a very good outline and I didn't really want to spend too much time in the library and all that. <laughs> so, I, so my method was that I just called up everybody I knew and I said, I'm writing a book on rape. And all these amazing things happened organically and I'll just tell you about a couple of them. Um, one was that I have a friend called Hilary Goodridge who was raped about 40 years ago in college and she described the story of what happened to her. It was a fellow undergraduate. It was really a horrible, I mean, all rape is brutal, but it was particularly brutal. And he raped her, strangled her, left, and then the next day, he sent her a rose. So I wrote all this down and I was sticking to my, my mantra of being calm and sensible about writing about rape. And then a couple of weeks later, I was actually attending a bar mitzvah in Boston. And there was this rabbi in the temple, it was this beautiful scene, and she was talking about love and forgiveness, and it was all lovely. And suddenly, I was so filled with rage, I thought about this red rose, and it was just beyond, it was just beyond imagining how someone could do that. And so that led me to write this chapter called A Brief Pause for Fury. So, I, so that became a part of the book. Then another thing that happened was that I saw a TED talk by this Icelandic woman called Thordis Elva. I don't know if anyone has seen this. She was 16 years old when she was raped by her boyfriend in Iceland. The boyfriend was visiting, a visiting student from Australia. And years later, she contacted this man and said, this is what you did to me, and didn't expect to hear back from him, but she did. They met, they, met, they discussed it, and they gave a TED talk together about forgiveness and reconciliation. It was so powerful to see this that then I thought I should write about redemption and forgiveness as an option. Anger is also an option. Vengeance, murder is an option. But this is an option too. So then I, I got to write a chapter called The Quality of Mercy. So, so it happened in this weird way where I had these certain bedrocks that I had in mind that I had to have in my book. But the way it developed was one thing kind of led to the other. And I think we'll talk more about that. So, then the last thing is I want to talk about those bedrocks. There were three things I really wanted to accomplish with this book, and that I, that's my manifesto for what we need to do about rape. The one is balance. And by that I mean that rape is very, very serious. It's an awful crime, but it is just one more crime. It's not the worst crime necessarily. I wanted to bring it into the realm of all life experience without making light of it. 
And I think that if we don't do this, we're doing a huge disservice to survivors because we're isolating them. We're telling them that what happened to you is out of the realm of our understanding. It's completely different. It doesn't fit into anything else. You're on your own. So keep quiet because you're too strange. So I wanted to bring it into the realm of general trauma and acknowledge that it's unique, but it has many things in common. Many of the quotes I have in my book are from people who've written about different kinds of trauma. We are also doing a huge favor to rapists when we do that, because we are kind of allowing them to flourish unseen. For me, this was a great challenge as a writer, because while I take the issue seriously, I'm actually rather a light-hearted person. So my biggest fear was that in trying to be level-headed, I, I would come across as flippant. So I really worked on that. It's also important to connect our conversations with rape, with our conversations about the rest of life, because it is connected. Like in America, you can't, can't talk about rape and criminal justice without talking about race. In India, you can't talk about rape without talking about caste. We have to put it in context of what else is going on. If we treat it as, a, as if it exists in a vacuum, we will never understand. Then my second bedrock thing was conversation. I, in my dreams, rape is a part of our everyday conversation. I'm, it's, it's not out there on its own. We, we should be able to discuss it at the dinner table with our kids, just like we discuss way worse things like genocide. Um, and I'm, I'm a feminist to the cockles of my heart, if there's such a thing. But I don't, want it, I don't want this book to be only in the women's studies section in bookstores. Part of the reason rape fascinates me is because it gets to the core of everything. How do we treat each other as humans? How do we decide to hurt or not hurt each other? How do we raise our children? So I wanted to write a book about a specific crime, but that's also about life and strength and family and coping. A book that could go in raising children or mystery or horror or economics, because the fact is rape costs us trillions of dollars in, in lost productivity. In fact, in India, I'm very happy to see it shelved once in history and once in business. Um, and then the last most important thing was that I wanted to, this is one thing I didn't have any nuance about, is choice. Victims do not choose to be raped, but rapists always make the choice to rape. It is a choice, you can choose to rape, you can choose not to rape. Um, this is really horrifying in one way, and I see why we don't take this on board, because it takes away the nice myth that they're out there, or that they can't help themselves, or all these things we tell ourselves. And it, it makes us realize that rape is here, it's ordinary. But it's also grounds for hope, because maybe if we take away all the social scaffolding that makes it okay, we can actually stop it. So, and last, I want to say that along those lines, I've been, while I've been very happy with the worldwide response to my book, which I really thought nobody would read, um, I've also come to realize how deeply we buy into the prevailing narratives about rape, all of us. One book is not going to change that. For example, in Jaipur, I had an hour-long session in which I spoke on stage about rape, how it doesn't have to define you, how you can live a joyous life, and so on. It was a very positive event. We talked on, on stage, we joked. And the next day, I went to the airport, and there was, the local Hindi paper had a, head, had a picture of me looking like this. <laughs> and, and the headline said, rape victim lives in the shadow of fear. <laughs> so they just decided before. Um, so we can write books, we can march in the streets, we can do all that. It's all good and it's all necessary. 
But none of it is enough if we don't look into each other's eyes and think and talk about the ways in which we are part of a system that makes it okay to violate someone in the name of desire or honor or biology, and then blame the person who was violated while the criminal walks jauntily off, whistling a merry tune. Thank you. Um, so, Hila, thank you so much. Um, wonderful to, to hear you speak. What, what bit of the bookshop should this book actually be in, though, do you reckon? Everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> it, could be, it could be at the register. It could be in the, it, you know, there it could be. It, I don't know. Maybe sociology. And I, I hate to say it shouldn't be in women's studies because I'm very pro-women's studies. But the thing is, I think it should be in men's studies. Totally. Yeah. Here, here. Let's round of applause for that one, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> um, so, and we'll open up to questions pretty soon. And um, we might sort of unpack some of the things that you've talked about a bit before um, and try and understand a little bit about more what you're saying about balance and about choice and about consent as well. But just to kind of kick off with, what is it that we really get wrong when we are talking about rape, whether it's people like myself or the media or, or politicians, what is it that we are constantly and persistently saying and doing wrong when it comes to the words that we use, the way that we speak about it? I think there are many things, but, and I talked about some of them, like the confusion between rape and sex, but I think what we do is we often, and I do this too, we often at the wrong times make it bigger, make the conversation bigger than it should be or smaller than it should be. Like, if you're discussing rape and then you get really worked up about all the things that I talked about, race, caste, this, that, it's very hard to have a discussion because you're overwhelmed. Mm. And also people who find it so horrifying that they just go, like, the, you know, in Ad I was in Adelaide Writers Week just recently and at, at a dinner party, somebody introduced me to another writer and she said, oh, you're the rape lady. <laughs> like, you know, so it, 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 we make it so big that that we can't deal with it, we can't cope. And then the other thing is that we make it too small. Mm. We make it too small because it's just sex, or it's not such a big deal. It's not, you know, some people, the other day someone said, well, you know, rape is not a physical crime. How is it not a physical crime? Mm. So, and then we do it also at the wrong time. Like when you're, it's great to sit up here on stage and discuss all the big ramifications. This is the place for that. But if you're sitting in a room with a friend of yours who's telling you just now that he or she has been raped, that's not the time to do the sociological analysis. That's the time to be with this one person dealing with this one pain and make it really personal. So I think we, we have trouble with that. Trying, trying to, as you say, strike that balance between how we're supposed to talk and what we're supposed to say and then right. all the other kind of societal expectations yeah. that are on us as well. And it's funny because in, in the book, like I thought that this was going to be harrowing reading this book. And yes, of course it is at times, but the way that you speak and the way that you write is, is full of joy, the way that it's crafted. So tell me a bit about, for you, the writing process to, to be able to do that so that we can pick up this book and, like, I went off and bought a copy immediately for a friend to read because it had such a powerful effect on me. Well, it was, I mean, I have to say that one of the re ways in which it, I think it's conversational is because I honestly didn't think anyone would read it. So... I wasn't very inhibited, because uh, I started writing it before Me Too, when rape was really this obscure topic. So it was more a way of, I'm going to write this book, and I'll, it's, this book has been waiting for me to write it. I'm going to write it and get it over with, and then I can move on to other things. 
But there, so I didn't really, I didn't, when I was sitting there in my pajamas writing my book, I didn't really picture this. So it, it kind of, I didn't have any filters. So I wrote the way I speak and the way I see it. And it also, the other thing that kept me honest was talking to all these people. And you talk to survivors and you sit there and you laugh, you cry, you make jokes. It's all in there. It's not one thing. So the book came, came out like that too, mm. because none of them were just one-dimensional. They're one, exactly, yeah. they're not one-dimensional. Um, you, you talk about the people that, 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 are, that are in the book, and there's a myriad of different humans that are there from all around the world. And, and after you, you published the op-ed in the New York Times, uh, you, you talk about the fact that you received thousands of emails from people all around the world. So tell me, who, who was it that you knew you had to talk to to, to tell the stories in this book? Well, not thousands. I don't know exactly. Maybe a thousand. Um, <laughs> a million. Yeah. <laughs> Billions. So I got about a thousand emails. And they were, I was really surprised that they were from everywhere. In fact, I got a lot from Scandinavia. And, and from women saying they'd never told anyone. From men. Some of the emails were so sweet. Because they all talked about my family and how they said, bless you, you have such a nice family. And, and a lot of people told me that they'd never told anyone before. So... Mm. I wrote back to every single person, except the really crazy sounding ones, and then <laughs> I, I, I well, say... What section of your email folder did they go into? Yeah, you know, that, those <laughs> that were deleted. Yeah. yeah. There weren't that many of those, right. actually. Most of them were amazing. And I wrote back to all of them, and then I couldn't bring myself to delete the emails, because it just seemed rude. So I put them all in a folder, and I put them away. And then when I thought of writing this book, it suddenly occurred to me that I had this huge database of... So I went back through the emails, and I've, I've picked some who... I didn't pick anyone who said they hadn't told anyone, and I didn't pick anyone who seemed to be in real crisis when they wrote to me. I picked people who seemed to have come to some kind of integration with it, because I didn't want to suddenly pop up five years later and scare someone, mm. you know. So, and I wrote to a bunch of them, and a bunch of them responded. I said, I'm writing this book, would you like to talk to me? And a f so quite a few of the people in this book, some I met, some from other countries I talked to, and then the other survivors in the book are either people I know or through word of mouth. Mm. Have you noticed the way that the conversation has changed over the years? I mean, obviously, the, 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 the story that you originally published when you were 20, I think it was, mm -hmm. in India, was of a particular time, and then all of a sudden the conversation has exploded, there's Me Too, etc., and all these other movements around the world. How has this conversation changed that you've seen over the last few years? Where are we today? Well, I can talk about India. Yep. Um, because in America, rape was always sort of vaguely discussed. But in India, it was just, it wasn't there. The only way we ever discussed it was to admire a woman who was raped and then killed herself. Because, you know, it's better to be dead than to be raped. And that, that's, in fact, that happened three or four days after I was raped, mm. where I somehow grew up in this family when I wasn't scared at night. No one ever told me. I had no idea that this thing happened. I was totally clueless, and then suddenly I was gang raped, and it was so startling and unknown. But the advantage of that is that it never occurred to me to feel embarrassed or ashamed, because no one had told me I had to. So, and my father was like me. He was, you know, this terrible thing happened. Let's move, you know, let's deal with it. And then about four days later, there was an article in the paper, because in Bombay, where we were, there was a married couple going home at night, and somebody took... The, they were surrounded by a gang of men. They, they took the woman away. The man, meanwhile, went home, 
to sleep or not to sleep, we don't know. Mm. And then the next morning she came back, walked into the kitchen, poured kerosene on herself and died. So this, this was the only conversation we had about rape in India. And now, after, especially after the December 12, 2012 thing, it's really an everyday conversation. I mean, my mother has a driver, and when he heard I was writing a book, he just casually said, so are you going to put your own rape in that? I mean, that is just... It didn't happen uh, in the Yeah, past. it didn't happen. But the thing is that, yes, the conversation has changed, the laws have changed, some for the worse, some for the better. But I can't, with any confidence, say whether or not life has changed. I have no idea if all this talking has meant even one less rape. Mm. I have no idea. So... It, it's very important to have for the conversation to change, but I just don't know. It needs know. to be able to be reflected back into yeah. society. But we need to have those conversations yeah. for that to happen. And the same goes for America, where, where I live now, where it's very much in the news, but we have all these stories. We talk about it and all, and then we have something like Brett Kavanaugh, mm. where, you know, a academic, white, blonde, middle class, the, the, the pinnacle of privileged womanhood, talks calmly about what happens to her and nobody believes her. So that's really frightening because mm. what happens to the rest of us if nobody believes her? Yeah. So there is a conversation, but, I, you know, it has to happen, but I wish I could sit here and say everything's all fine Everything's now. fine, yeah. exactly. But we need to keep on, we yeah. need to keep on talking. Yeah. That's, that's the whole point. We need to keep having the words to be able to talk about it. And it's funny because you were saying how you, you, in the book you talk about talking to your daughter who was eight or nine right. at the time about the fact that you had been raped and... And I was sitting there thinking, is that something that I could say to a, a child of that age? But your point is, is that we should be able to talk to everybody about this. It should be a conversation that we are able to have all the time. Well, and the other, my other point is that I was the only one with issues about it. She was fine. I mean, she already knew what rape was. She knew me. I don't know what I thought would happen, that she'd suddenly change her view of me or be totally traumatized. But I just told her and, she, you know... She was eating breakfast, past the cheese, fine, it's okay. It's, so, so then that kind of makes it, that makes it okay for when she does have to deal with it in any other context. Yeah. You, you discussed consent. Consent, that's an interesting way of pronouncing yes, it. Yes, consent. Consent, yes. Uh, consent uh, of course, just, just before, you know, how we teach our children and our partners and ourselves, of course, about consent. It's a really big part of mm -hmm. the book. Um, tell me a bit about what you learned from the BDSM community, because mm. I think that's actually really quite... It's, I mean, if you're talking about consent, that is one community that knows it very well. Yes, and does it, it very does. Well. And in fact, uh, it was interesting because I found myself comparing the BDSM community to the nuns in my convent school, <laughs> where I went to school. I always do that. Yeah, so it just seemed like an apt comparison because it was so interesting. I went to convent school in here, even though I'm not Catholic, the best education was in convent school. So we all went to convent school. And we were told, whatever you do, don't associate with boys. Because boys are very bad. And if we see you on the street with a boy, even outside of school hours, we will expel you. No questions asked. And that was our message about boys. Whereas, and then, you know, I talked to this dominatrix for my book, and she is a, you know, she was all into her whips and chains and the whole thing. And she <laughs> told me about consent in the BDSM community, and it just seemed amazing to me, because here, are, here is a community where they do all the things we encourage our kids to do. You talk about sex, you have rules, you make sure the other person wants, you do what they want, you make sure they, they know 
you want, you, blah, blah, blah. you make sure that you're doing something you want and they want, you communicate, you have a safe word. It all seems so lovely and affirmative in a way. So I found myself writing that I would rather send my daughter to the BDSM community for, <laughs> for sex ed than the nuns, you know, because it really, and I'm not saying you have to keep having this big academic discussion the whole time while you're having sex, but I think it all boils down to caring. Yeah. Like, you have to care what the other person wants. That's all. Whatever rules you have, you have to care. You have to be a guy who thinks that it actually ma it means something the person is just lying there, mm. Mm. you know, and not responding. So it's actually quite simple. We need to keep having that conversation yeah. again. Talking is okay, even though sex is funny and strange and yeah. weird, but keep talking. Mm, absolutely. And of course, that, you know, there's, there's different kinds of rape. There's rape, some rape starts off as sex and turns into rape. Then yep. there's damage rape, like rape that soldiers of war do. And there's no question of then discussion. But, but the funny thing is that the two, I find, are really related. Like, even when I started writing this book, in my head, the two were completely distinct. There was damage rape and there was sex rape, for lack of a better word. But... But then everything bleeds into each other. Like there was this case in India last year of this eight-year-old Muslim tribal girl who the uh, dominant Hindu community wanted the land that her tribe lived on. So they kidnapped her, a whole bunch of men, including policemen, kidnapped her and raped her essentially to death. They raped her and raped her and then they hit her head with a rock. And there was this one little piece in it where there was a story of how in the end, she was almost dead. They were going to finish her off, and one of the guys said, can you wait? I want to do it one more time. And I, it, it suddenly was like, well, you can't... Differ. What was it going on with him? Was, was he getting some pleasure out of this, if it was fully a political act? So it is, it is very confusing to talk about, but, but it's all there. Mm, mm, absolutely. Yeah. Um, We'll open up to questions in, in just a moment, but you, 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 had a, you told us about your brief pauses that are mm -hmm. in the book, which actually, I mean, they serve a purpose for you, but they serve a purpose for us as the reader as well, to, to stop and, and remind us about what, what is actually truly going on, the brief pause for fury, for example, mm -hmm. um, or for confusion, which is what you talked about. There's also that small one, it's only a page, the brief pause for ennui. Yes, yes. ennui, um, yes. Tell me again why these moments, not only for you in the book, but for us to stop and literally look what's happening out there are important when we're talking about this subject. Um, actually, yeah, the brief pauses were another kind of interesting literary device that kind of came to me because, like I said before, I really cared about this balance of talking seriously and sensibly, but then I didn't want to drain all the... I didn't want to take all the juice out of it in the sense of... It is an emotional issue, and it is a very deep issue. So after I wrote a few chapters, I uh, was reading the New York Times Sunday magazine one day, and there was an article about this Yazidi girl who was 16 years old, whose name was Sohaila, who had been a sex slave and been raped, and there was this photograph of her just sitting there, and for some reason, it just got it under all my defenses. I was all calm and zen about the whole thing, but this was so upsetting and so terrible to see this girl and what she had been through that I suddenly got scared that in my book, I'd forgotten that to put that in, that I'm so busy trying to take the temperature down that I, I don't want someone, say, you know, not women so much, but say a man who's reading it 
to lose sight of how awful it is at the same time that I'm trying to talk about it. So then just thinking it was just once, I wrote this little thing called, in the, and I stuck it in the middle called A Brief Pause for Horror. And it was like, here we are talking about it, but let's take a moment to remember how awful it is. And then the fury came, so it ended up being five brief pauses. It was horror, fury, confusion, terror, and ennui. And it, it was a reminder to me also that you, you can have emotions even while you're being sensible. And to all of us, that the whole thing is fraught and mixed up and chaotic. And we have to just sit there and take little pieces of it. And, and pick away at it, for yeah. sure. Um, fascinating to speak with you. And I bet you all, do you all have questions? Yes, I suspect that you do. Um, so if you do have a question, we've got, two, we've got two microphones on the left and the right-hand side of the stage. Don't be shy. Uh, if you can um, walk behind the microphones and ask your questions of Sahila, she would be delighted to, to answer as much as she can. Um, before, while you're doing that, I very briefly wanted to ask you about Sharon Zacks, who ah. is in the book. She's a dentist who, and I was like, is an Australian in this book? Tell me about Sharon Zacks. Yeah, lots of Australians. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think she's in Melbourne. She is, yes. Yeah. Um, so I call, I have a friend who lives in Melbourne who long ago worked with me in the Rape Crisis Centre in Boston. And when I called her and told her that I'm writing this book, she said, oh, I just met this dentist. And this dentist is amazing. She specializes in treating trauma victims, rape victims, torture victims, veterans of war, and you must talk to her. And that just sounded amazing to me, partly because I used to have flashbacks at the dentist after being raped. It was, it ju I just always did, and I thought I was crazy, and I was the only one. Um, so I called her. And we Skyped a few times, and she has her, almost her very own chapter in the book. It's called A Bag Full of Dentures. And she, it was very interesting because it was a way for me to lead into talking about trauma and how we kind of tend to pigeonhole victims' re responses, which is really hard when you're the victim because, you know, for, for instance, think about when someone dies. You can't really control the ways in which your grief comes out. You, you might feel in a perfectly good mood at the funeral, and then you might, you know, see something in a clothing store a few weeks later and lose it. You just don't know where it comes out. And it's the same with rape. So it's not just because you're raped doesn't mean you necessarily have issues with sex and being in the dark. You might have issues with a whole host of things like going to the dentist. So she was really good. And also, she was great. I love talking to her. <laughs> She's amazing. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, okay, our first question here on the, the left. Thank you. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes. yes. Thank you. My name's Jenny. Thank you so much, Sahaira, for the book that you've written. Um, I absolutely gobbled it down very, very quickly as soon as I received it. And I enjoyed listening to your interview the other day on Conversations as well. So I am also writing, attempting... <laughs> to write a book on this subject as well, mm -hmm. going under the working title of Wisdom of Survivors at the moment. And to explain what I want to achieve is that back when I experienced rape, plural, plural, back in the 80s, there was nothing in the media, there was really nothing that I could turn to that could help me to understand what I was feeling whether it was, you know, all, all of the emotions associated with it. And anyway, years later, then stuff did come out in the media. But I found that most, and I've, I was very, very grateful for that, extremely grateful for that, but most of what I was hearing was about how rape understandably ruins people's lives. So what I want to do is to write this book where 
it's actually talking about how um, people have travelled on the journey of recovery and what they have been able to do to recover. Or to, I'm not saying that any of us have recovered, but what they have done to be able to do to get there. So I found your book really interesting. And my question is because I'm actually trying to write a book where it presents a positive side in a way, but I do not want to undermine the terror that comes with it as well, which is why I liked reading your <coughs> pause for horror and the other things as well. So, um, and I'm meeting with people who are sharing with me their story. So I guess my question is, how well, easily, possible is it to write a book where the bulk of this book I want to be about compassion, about hope, about a guiding light for people so that they um, can see that a life of ruin is not the only option. Thank you. Sahila? Well, I hope it's possible because I hope I've also done it. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, I think, again, it's easy to get overwhelmed with this business of how bad it is and are you going to, are you going to make light of it? And I think it's really important to remember that maybe it's not been done for rape so much, but it's been done for way bigger things. People have written books about the Holocaust that are full of hope and about genocide. So if, I think it's important to just keep in mind that human beings are like this. We recover. We are resilient. And so if you keep that in mind and still kind of honor the horror of the situation, it's very possible. And I tell you, for me, it was really... It became much more possible when I started talking to other survivors and realized that there's nothing special about me. You know, that's what people do. People integrate it into their lives and move on. Some people's lives are destroyed by rape, and some people's lives are destroyed by other things, too. I'm not trying to say everyone comes out of it. But I really think most people do, otherwise we really wouldn't have a functional world, mm. because it's really common. So it's eminently possible, and I'm sure you'll do it. Thank you very much for your question. <laughs> um, over on this side, please. Thank you. Hi, my name's Kate. Sorry, I've got a um, bit of bronchitis. Um, look, how can I say this? So I was raped in, nearly died in uh, 1987, the year after Anita Cobby. Those Australians will know that horrific one. Um, so I was 37 at the time. I'm also a lesbian, so I actually had to play as though I was straight, so it kind of had an interesting story. So I'm a survivor, and very much a survivor after eight years of complete madness. I, and I, didn't, I chose not to stay in victim. But I, and so I, I find this still very difficult, because it triggers, even though, it, like, I'm 68 now, it's, um, it still triggers, it's still very painful sometimes. And, and I look in this room, and I don't know, maybe 200 people here, a few men, um, and I'm sure if we, if we put our hands up, you probably find the majority have been sexually assaulted in one way or another. And I sort of think, why I'm feeling a bit comfortable is I sort of think we're talking to the wrong audience because this isn't my problem. This is not my problem. It's a men's problem. It's about power and control. And power and control, it's all pervasive in all manners of ways. You know, even ScoMo kind of said, like, look at what he kind of says. And, and I sort of think, like, sometimes I think, let's have a day about all about men. So men can get together and they can say, how do we talk when we talk about rape? And then they kind of try and sort out their issues. Because until they sort out their issues, nothing is going to change. And I feel really strong about it because I'm sick of it being our problem and we have to deal with their issues mm. and the ramifications sometimes 
in just very, very destructive ways about their problems, because they're not our problems. Mm. Thank you, thank you. Um, I agree with you that rape is a male problem and not a women's problem. However, here we are, and we are all affected by it, even if it doesn't happen to us, to someone we know, and we all know men who have either been raped or who have raped. So I agree, it would be great to have an audience full of men, but I've actually, I've had those. They also exist, so today, I'm happy to talk about my book to whoever chooses to be here. But I, I do agree that it is a male problem, and that's why I was saying it should be in men's studies. Mm. But I have to say, I was really pleasantly surprised in India, of all places, where I, that was the country I was the most scared of, because it's mine, and I care, and that's where I was raped, and that's, the, you know, like, I care about all of you, but after next week, I'll never see you again, I'm gone. <laughs> but in India, I will see them again. And so, I was really amazed at the audiences, which were lots of men, who asked lots of questions, including exactly what you said. There were all these young men who stood up and said, what can we do? We've never talked about this. We haven't understood it. We want to be better. We want to know how to talk about this and how to change. So I think there are men out there who want to change. They might not necessarily be the ones who need to change, but we have to start somewhere. And also as women, if we think about things like how we raise our sons and our daughters, that is a huge thing to do. We do have a responsibility, not necessarily to stop rape, but to, to teach other people, especially the young ones who depend on us, how to be you know, respectful human beings. And we all need to learn that, because none of us are perfect at it. But I'm with you. It is amazing. In fact, it was funny in Jaipur. I was having lunch, and there was an older Indian man sitting there, and he said, Oh, what have you written? I said, I wrote a book about rape. And he said, why are all the books about women? Why can't you write books about men? <laughs> I said, and, and I said, it is about men. You know, so sometimes they just don't know. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I work in the criminal justice space. And what you tend to see uh, when uh, there's a trial... Uh, regarding a sexual assault or a rape is that a jury is, is much more likely to convict if the um, accused is a person of colour or has, you know, a criminal record where they have other crimes. Um, and I guess my question is how do you talk to people generally without being... I mean, in a, in a way that they'll actually listen to say, look, the rapist might actually be your, your brother or your best mate or someone you think is a really good person and that to be a rapist doesn't mean you have to be an absolute monster in every area of your life. And that, because it, it's a real problem in the, in the criminal justice space that because the accused often isn't a complete monster who doesn't love anybody and, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, often at least the way I see it, is that the reason that the jury is coming back not guilty is because they say, oh, well, you know, this person is really dedicated to scouts and mm -hmm. um, <laughs> does this... Yeah, yeah so I, I'm just wondering, how do, you, how do you have that conversation with people? And well, I think you've it? just put it really well. I mean, that's exactly how you have the conversation. As you say that, everything you've just said, which is that rapists are ordinary people 
and that it, it's like the, what I read about the brief pause for confusion, that someone can be a really good person. I had an uncle, I hope this thing is not being recorded, who was really a well-known social worker. He started, a, he started an organization for tribal people, and he just was this amazingly respected guy. But all of us girls knew we shouldn't be alone in a room with him. And these two, these two aren't supposed to go together, but they do. So I think just keep saying it. And the other thing about the men of color being convicted more, I don't know the system in Australia, but I know in the US, it goes even beyond that. They're more likely to get accused, and then they're more likely to get convicted, and they're more likely to plead guilty, even if they're innocent. Mm. Because black men in America tend to, it's, there's a real trend towards black men accused of rape to quickly plead guilty because they know that they're going to be convicted anyway, whether they did it or not. And so this way, at least they get a lesser sentence. So I think the way to kind of think about that is to think about what I said before, which is that rape is not unconnected to everything else. If there's racism in the system, there will be racism when you're dealing with this. If there's sexism, it will be. So it all, it's not out there. It's all part of all our everyday bigotries and prejudices about men and women and people of a different color. But this business of it could be whoever, somebody you know, it's just true. We have to just keep saying it. Mm. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for your question. Thank you, and thank you for the presentation, and I will definitely be buying your book. My name's Angela. Um, I was also raped uh, by a white man, but um, I only realised I was raped after uh, the hashtag MeToo movement came along. Um, but that's not what I wanted to ask your question about. I'm Indian ethnically um, and have been here since I was a small child and uh, had witnessed my father you know, um, beating my mother up, uh, and that was normalised in our culture, as I'm sure you're aware. Um, so it wasn't something that my mother spoke about. But towards the end of her life, she also brought to me that he was a rapist. And he's a pillar of society, and again, I hope this isn't being videoed. Um, you know, he's got that status as an older Indian man in the community. And I just wondered, Yes, it's a rape culture in India, and uh, I think it's fabulous what you're doing uh, in the Indian context, but I wanted to ask you what you might be doing in the US as well in speaking to those communities, because I haven't had the courage to do it yet. I'm also gay, and therefore there's all sorts of barriers for me to speak up in that community, but I'd, I'd really appreciate hearing from you about what you've, you've tried to do in that context. Um. Well, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing yet, because it's all just beginning. And I, I would love to have an in and speak to first communities in the US. I don't quite know how it's going to do. When I was at Adelaide, there was an author there, crime writer, Mads Nodbro, I think. And he's written this book called The Girl Without Skin. And he was talking about first communities in Greenland, and how in some of those communities, it's like in some communities, he said, every single girl is raped. And how do you reach out without being patronizing to communities and help them get the resources to figure out what's happening and what to do about it? I don't really have the answer to that. I'm interested in doing it, but I'm actually a writer, not so much out there doing social things. But I don't know, but I think you're very courageous to speak up. Thank you.
Thank you. And your question, thank you. Hi, um, my name is Sarah. I hope I don't mumble and humble and everything else. Um, so I'm a therapist and um, basically on my 26th birthday at work, um, my, the CEO organised a birthday cake and they got me in the room and I was like, oh, okay, great. And uh, it was my first cake because I don't really like sweet. Um, basically, so we're here, we're talking about women, but then usually before we become women, we're girls and often we get, you know, um, you know, for some of us, like myself, being sexually abused as a child and, and I actually realised I was sexually abused when I came to Australia because again, back there, there was no conversation. Um, my, mo my mother knew there was, you know, weird, I was always in pain, I was bleeding, but it just didn't, wasn't really talked about, although it was known. So basically, I'm starting this um, foundation back in my country, um, and it's, the focus is on sweet because I love, I, I never had a bad association with sweet, but I never liked it because it was, sugar was one of the tools that was used um, against me. So I never, I really just developed a, really bad, um, I guess, you know, I didn't really like it. I always avoid it. So basically, I'm starting this thing, and I sat there, and I went through your stage of um, rage. It's like, going to go after all the men and everything else. Um, but then I took a pause, and my CEO said, what about the boys? You know, what, what happens to the little boys? Um, and then, because they're going to re-offend. They might, they might re-offend. And then I, had a, I, I have a son. And so basically... My question to you is, if I'm going to go back home and talk about these difficult topics, but then also I need the men's involved, what advice would you give a young person like myself to get the conversation started, not just among the girls and the mothers and the community elders, but also the men's and the little boys, so that they too can know that this is not just a woman issue, this is actually an um, uh, you know, everyday human issue? That's my first question. The other question I have was, you mentioned that, for example, in America, you can't really talk about certain things without race. Now, unfortunately, a topic came up to me that says, well, you can't really talk about this topic without talking about poverty in Africa. And my concern is, there's so many NGOs, there's so many topics about poverty. I don't want the, the light to move away from the actual human crisis, which is, the rape and the sexual violence against um, children. So how do you balance the two so that you're addressing societal issue, but at the same time you're not taking away the shine of the actual issue? Mm. So those, were, those are my two questions. And thank you for your talk. <laughs> thank you. Um, so the first question about getting men and boys involved, it seems to me that it's important to remember that whether we get them involved or not, they are involved. Because none of us live in a world without men and boys. And so, I think to even just keep that in mind, that when you're dealing with an issue, you don't automatically think that you only need to talk to the women. I mean, I, for me, I know that rape is a man's issue because men rape, but I, as I was writing my book, it became more and more, I already, always knew this, but it became even clearer to me that in my own life, some the biggest heroes around this issue are men. I mean, the person who was the most supportive of me when I was raped and who keeps popping up in my book every few pages is my father. So I think unless you're living in an isolated women's community on an island somewhere, 
we are talking with men about it. It's just a question of how and of how we talk to them. So, and as for, as for boys, when we talk to our daughters, why would we not talk to our sons at the same time about the same things? Mm -hmm. So we, we don't need to isolate them. And I've forgotten your second question. It, um, it was about um, the, talking about society issues across Africa, for example. Oh, yeah. yeah, this is, I mean, I think the thing is, it's very important to remember that issues are related, but stick to your guns because they're always doing this to women. They did this in the civil rights movement to women in America where you brought up an issue like sexual discrimination and you were told, you know, that can wait till we deal with civil rights. That takes the back door. So we cannot give in to this nonsense because it's always, you know, it takes a back burner because the other thing is more important. The fact is, it is part of the other thing. Mm. So just keep, you know, don't be embarrassed Thank you. about that. Yeah. Um, I think we've only got time for one more question. Uh, so, there, there you are. Hi. Hi. Um, thank you so much for the work that you've done and the work that you'll still be doing. Um, my question is about fear. Um, I, I feel like, um, as, as a woman um, in a very progressive society, I, and I'm going to generalise to say, a lot of people, a lot of women still fear being raped or sexually assaulted. Um, so I'm wondering if you can share a little bit of insight into how we can begin to change the narrative of instead thinking how do we survive when it happens, um, after it happens, how can we begin to change the narrative about fear? So if we're walking down the street, how can we think, okay, there's a possibility that we can be raped. So is there a way to think about it before we even jump to the conclusion that if we are raped, therefore I've got to go to the police, I've got to do this, do this, do this, how to survive? Can we begin to talk about strength and power within, within our bodies, within our minds, to not constantly fear rape? Mm. Well, this, this is a fascinating one, and I've thought about it a lot, because what, the first thing I think is to get the correct knowledge because if you actually think about it, it's pretty silly of us that we worry when we're out there and not in there. Because we're much more likely to get raped by a boyfriend, a father, or an uncle, a husband. But we don't really have that much in mind in our daily lives when we choose our relationships, when we choose our friendships. Yet we go out there and we worry about being raped. And you know, this is interesting for me to say because that is actually what happened to me. I had the untypical stranger weapons. You know, I had the kind of movie rape that is the stereotypical rape. But I know that that's not the most common one. So that, to know, to have that knowledge is important. But the other thing is to put fear in its context. It's like, rape is not the only thing you should be afraid of. If you think about it, you can be afraid of coconuts falling on your head, and you can think about <laughs> being, you know, dying in a car accident, and there are many things. And I know rape is very likely. But I feel rape is something that is much more, um, attached to the feminine body. Yes, it is attached to it. And then what happens is that you, you know it's true. You can't tell yourself it's not going to happen because it might happen. But I think it, it comes to like a way of living where you acknowledge the reality that women's lives are dangerous and then you figure out a way to also include joy in that life and to not feel ashamed about things you might do to to mitigate fear, no matter how irrational they are. Like I once, to prove to myself that I wasn't afraid, three years or so after being raped, I drove across the US by myself in a car and I camped out. I was petrified the whole time. So, <laughs> so what I did was before I left, 
I bought a fake moustache. <laughs> and I used to, I had really short, my brother cut my hair, and I used to wear this moustache. And the thing is, it was ridiculous. But, <laughs> but I felt really good about it. So I think, so I think that, you know, we, we have to also learn to listen to ourselves and the things that make us feel good, while at the same time acknowledging that we're not, we can't do anything to prevent it. We can't do anything to prevent it. So I, it's a difficult answer. It's a difficult question. But I do think in terms of changing the narrative, we can remember how vulnerable we, we are, but also remember how powerful we are in so many ways. We are so powerful. We do make choices. We don't choose to get raped, but we do choose how to live our lives and how to be open and be fearless. And also, the thing for me, what I had to learn personally was that I don't have to keep on proving this stuff. For years, it was like I didn't want to give in to the fear because I was terrified. And so I would grit my teeth and go out there. I would grit my teeth and do the thing that scared me. And then one day I thought, why? Why am I doing this? Why can't I just not go? <laughs> it's fine. So I think part of it is just forgiving ourselves and not, not always trying to prove it because it's really not up to us. We are pretty brave even when we act cowardly. Yeah. So, but I don't know if I really answered your question. I'm thank sorry. Thank you so yeah. much. Uh, uh, thank you. Amazing. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't know if it's the best advice, but I am actually going to go and buy a moustache afterwards, so <laughs> why, why not? Um, powerful, amazing, strong, fearless, gorgeous women that we all are in this room, and can we please give the hugest round of applause to Sahila Abdullahi. <laughs>